Hello and welcome back to All My Darlene. I'm sorry I got cut off. I'm trying to figure out where I got cut off. I think I got cut off here. At the top of page five. I'm hoping so. It has seemed to Norman Thomas and to others in many walks of life that those who had disputed the rigid Wilson's paradoxical and often self-contradictory justification of the war had sinned against the Holy Ghost. Or possibly it was as if by his harshness toward them Wilson could silence his secret lingering doubts, which neither his eloquence nor the applause of the multitudes could wholly stifle. Thomas observed, he who dared to proclaim abroad America's faith and freedom of speech and opinion used none of his great power and great in greater influence to modify the cruelty of our espionage law or the preposterous rigors of its enforcement. Indeed, it may be that Wilson wanted Debs, with his smashed utopian dreams, to suffer as he suffered in what seemed an increasingly doomed search for his version of utopia. As his face twitched, as he staggered onward, he perhaps wanted Debs's face to twitch and wanted him to reel, stagger faint fall upon the road to universal peace and justice. Oh, shoot, I'm hoping this is where I started off. Conscious was not corporate, but was individual, and no state had the right to ask a man to cede his conscience to it as to a higher power. Yeah, I read that part. I like that sentence. The man whom the self-righteous Wilson had consigned to a prison sentence had been four times a candidate for president of the United States under the socialist banner, and indeed, through all his political life, which was a life of failure to reach that high office where he could never have been called chief executive, for with his election, the United States would have ceased to be a capitalistic country and would have gone out of business, as some of his enemies thought. There had been thousands upon thousands of his disciples who believed that there would come some time, some blessed march forth, when they would follow the inaugural parade in Debs's carriage into the White House, as would be recalled by Norman Thomas. Debs would run for president from the Atlanta Penitentiary in 1920, winning in his district hands down, as he, old and puny gentleman who might never live to be released, would laughingly remark, the tears running down his cheeks. The fact that the votes of his fellow convicts could not be counted did not rob them of their value to him, but were rather to be remembered by him in the most precious straws that had been cast. Okay, i got to take a second to tell you about some U.S. history. So, generally, uh, criminals that have been sentenced to jail uh, time cannot vote. They have lost their right to vote, and a lot of times they can't even vote even after they've, they're out of prison. Uh, for the United States, this is a big deal because we have like 250,000 inmates at any one time and have incarcerated all those. Most of them are minorities, black and brown. Um, it's just a higher percentage of the, of the population. Also, the U.S. has pretty much guaranteed, just because I've done um, uh, political work within the two-party system and as a third party, and so that is basically locked up. They, the bar to enter as a third party candidate is extremely high, extremely difficult. And, um, uh, you get, you're not included in any debates. You're not included in any of the advertise. you know, you get no free advertising. You get none of that, uh, as a third party candidate. So it's basically, uh, it's basically two-party tyranny. I mean, they have it locked up. There's just no other way to get in. So it's uh, this is so even though Debs was doing this, the Socialist Party was doing this before those uh, laws came into effect to restrict another party. 
which is probably done because of Debs. Um, <clears throat> the bar was pretty high to begin with. Like it was not an easy feat if you were not part of the political establishment. And then it's only gotten worse as time has gone by. The departed Debs had had that comic sense which must sustain a lar larger tragic sense than most people know, especially if they confine themselves to personal or egocentric horizons, shutting out history as a thing of no concern to them. He had come up the hard way, from locomotive fireman on the train that was this world speeding through darkness with no headlight, but that which was given by man's humanitarian consciousness. And he had clung to no desire for an easy way. He had had, moreover, no capacity to acknowledge failure and defeat. That was what he had said when he was in the prime of his manhood and in the heart of the industrial conflict. But when he was old, he had experienced in the darkness of the prison cell, where he wore a convict's garb, the sense of despair that had always been the twin of hope. Hope and despair were two of the most famous twins of the 19th century. According to Horace Traubel, Walt Whitman's secretary and literary executor, and thus a living conduit to Deb's great love for the author of Leaves Grass, Deb's had ten hopes to your one hope and ten loves to your one love. When Deb spoke a harsh word, it was with tears. He was a great lover indeed with a miraculously magnetic personality, magnetic hand which seemed charged with energy pulsing, drawing toward it all weaker creatures. But he was also the great hater of that injustice which was created by man and not by God, was not given in the nature of things. He was an Aesopian fab fabulist, fabulist, in the realm of socialism, one who had employed in his most ordinary and extraordinary discourse the time-worn, often antique coins of speech that were current in his day, and by which he had hoped to speak directly to the hearts of all the orphans in this orphaned world, and make himself understood in an intuitive sense as might not have been the case if he had relied upon arid abstractions. An early commentator believed that Marx's philosophy might have done better sledding in America if it had not been a called dialectical materialism and thus not alienated from the beginning those who were in love with the spiritual values in this most materialistic nation. Some were of the opinion that Marx's is surely not superfic philosophy would have done better if the most not, if the most unread red book in America had not been called red, thus evoking the memory of the red man who had been slaughtered as the colonialists wave after wave expanded their domain from the east to the west, only utopians usually regretting the slaughter, which amounted to the all but total extermination of the red people. A socialist by instinct who had yearned for the brotherhood of locomotive firemen, the union for which, under the aegis of the Knights of Labor, Debs had worked with passion and devotion as an organizer, so that it might become, with his assistance in the founding of new chapters and the drawing up of new charters, the continental brotherhood reaching from sea to shining sea, and even in the Canadian wilds, and who then, having been dissatisfied by a union of the skilled, by whom he had to felt restricted as if in chains, had begun to enlarge the ideal of union into the American Railway Union, that of the unskilled, which he hoped would grow into a union of all workers in universal brotherhood, irrespective of race, color, or creed, excluding not even the least paint scraper or wheel wiper, who was scraped of his paint and wiped by the wheels of locomotives passing over him until it was a handful of dust. He was never the abstract theoretician, although certainly he had thumbed through the pages of Marx at the time of his transmutation from labor unionism to socialism in the evening of the 19th century and the dawn of the 20th century, when it would seem that he had no future in the real world, if such there ever was, that he was the lost leader of only the lost battalions, that he was the Roland who would rise up only the dead with his winding horn. 
He would be looked back upon by some modern Marxist dialectical math materialists as if he had been a wandering spirit, the old grandfather of Dickens's The Old Curiosity Shop, or even the golden-haired little Nell of socialism, or even the tiny Tim, something of another era like an old rag doll thrown upon an ash heap and left to burn, although crying with a human cry which should be heard upon the farthest stars. Once, when Debs was running for president of the socialist ticket, was asked by a flock of Bane barking newspaper hounds on the steps outside his hotel in Chicago what he thought of the restriction against Chinese immigration to the American shores, he had answered briefly, consulting his watch as if he had not a moment to spare. The souls of Chinese children are yellow butterflies. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Then had turned and walked rapidly away without giving any but this surely not world-shaking news from which to provide a sensational headline. Among the many statements that Debs made regarding childhood, and one that was the brief summary of many such remarks throughout the years, was that in which he compared children with flowers. It was an archetypal image of death and resurrection. He was a big, rough flower himself, with something of Buddha in his nature, something of Oriental serenity about him. Carl Sandburg would observe of him when he was an old, thin-boned gentleman sitting in his garden without a hair upon his head, and none could have dreamed that he was so near his death. Debs had said the sweetest, tenderest, most pregnant words uttered by the pro proletariat of Galilee were, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Childhood! What a holy theme! Flowers they are with souls in them, and if on this earth man has a sacred charge, a holy obligation, it is to these tender buds and blossoms of humanity. Debs was of the belief that socialism and sleeping in the womb of time long before it was born, the shape of future things had been implicit long before they had appeared as no reform that was simply spontaneous and without preparation could be more than transient. No doubt the peace-seeking President Wilson, whose somewhat ambivalent policy of preparedness was leading step by step to war, and indeed America was already in the war except for the technical fact that the pro-war fever was not yet at the boiling point at which the president could safely ask for a declaration of war and believe that all the people would follow him over the brink into the bottomless abyss. I was disturbed but not surprised when the terrifyingly incandescent bomb was thrown upon the San Francisco Preparedness Day Parade, wounding many people and killing some, including those who dissolved into bloody foam, to the somewhat isolated Californians who had not been greatly impressed by the sinking of the canard liner Lusitania, and the North Sea off the coast of Ireland by the German U-boat, with the loss of the thousand lives. The reality of the war had been brought home in such a memorable way that some wild people of unalterable radical views would always entertain the thought that the poison fruit had been dropped at the instigation of the warmongers themselves. This carnage had occurred on a vast scale on July 22, 1916, and it would be marked upon the calendar of the nation's grief. The throwing of the bomb would be traced by deliberate and intricate logic, founded upon the shakiest premises to five well-known lab labor agitators, among them two of the most famous scapegoats of that guilt-ridden time, Thomas Jeremiah Mooney and Warren Knox Billings. Okay, I don't know a whole lot about this. I'd have to look it up, but there are instances in uh, U.S. history where we have embellished... Um, attacks upon the U.S. in order to whip up the fervor for conflict and war. Because that... Uh, so what socialists, uh, psychologists have said across, um, 
like we don't naturally do this. We don't naturally go to war. We don't naturally do this. It, it takes pressure and sustain. You don't naturally kill other people. It takes sustained pressure and um, stress and push in order to keep people killing other people. So, yeah, the U.S. History has a history of that. I do not remember if this uh, Lusitania, and I do not know about this bombing. Um, Tom Mooney had been with Debs on the Red Special in his 1908 presidential campaign against the two Bills, Brian and Taft, and like Carl Sandburg, who would go over to Woodrow Wilson when he was promising peace by way of war, but who would later regret this defection, had been for a time a socialist fellow traveler and reporter spreading red like paint upon red barns. Mooney's father had been a Hoosier coal miner and one of the first organizers of the Knights of Labor and participated in the strike against the coal mining barons in the little town of Washington, David County, Indiana, where he had been shot in the leg by a hireling thug and tearing the smoking pistol from his hand had shot him in the chest, acting in self-defense against a strike breaker. Then with his wife, who was a migrant from the old sod, and three little children of whom the oldest was Tom, had crawled away on his ever-bleeding leg and had hidden out several nights and days in the fields and woods until told by a fellow striker that it was safe to return, that he had killed no one, that the wound in the chest had been superficial. Um, you have to understand, uh, also in the U.S., I mean, they set National Guard guardsmen to kill uh, strikers, uh, coal mine strikers, or any kind of labor disputes. The National Guard was kill called out. Police were called out. Like, it was violent. We, we have a very violent history. When Tom was ten years old, his father had died of coal dust-shrouded lungs, although his widow attributed the mortality of this crippled night of labor to the corrosive wound that had been given to him by the laborer's scab during the strike. Actually, Miner's pneumonia was caused by the negligence of the coal barons, who preferred to, preferred to, attribute, uh, who preferred to attribute this to one of the many which were acts of God. Upon the shoulders of this apple-headed Red-cheeked little boy had fallen the responsibility of helping to support his widowed mother and little children for whom she could not have earned enough wages for bread when she became a sorter of rags in a paper mill at Holyoke, Massachusetts. He once remarked, I suppose the urge to serve the labor movement was born in me. He had become her helper as a rag picker in the paper mill by day, a laundry worker at night at his mother's side, before becoming an iron molder apprentice, a ladle ladler of iron in its liquid state, giving off showers with sparks from the long-handled spoon which he would carry before him, his body naked from the waistline up, lest any shirt he wore might catch a flying spark and turn him into a ball of fire. He had become a member of the International Molders Union, a brotherhood in which he would keep his membership through all the years of his life. Formerly an iron molder for the gold coupler, G-O-U-L-D, gold coupler, uh, Coupler works in Depew, New York. He had managed to save fare for a third-class passage from the New World to the Old World, where with a bedecker in his grimy hands from which all the waters of the Tiber could not wash off the dust of the mills. Bedecker, B-A-E-D-E-K-E-R. -E 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 I don't know what that is. Even as his face glistened with the marks of iron and steel and glass particles, he had made a tour of European countries, mainly the art galleries. He had been standing before Rembrandt in the Museum of Rotterdam when a well-dressed, well-heeled American who had recently attended the International Socialist Convention at Stuttgart had offered to him the glad hand of fellowship and suggested that he consider how the workers of Europe lived or did not live. Those who lived under the ground in Europe 
had more in common with those who lived under the ground in America than those who lived above the ground in any country. The America to which Mooney had returned was going through a dollar crisis so chronic that for the po poor folks it was as permanent a state as if it had been the collapse of a dying father's lungs. The impatient young man, as it was said of him, had a tendency that he would never lose, and that was to see all things as black and white, good and evil, right and wrong, and his were swift judgments, choices between two alternatives in which he was always right by being left. When this son of the fallen knight of labor with the barrel chest and the shock of wild black Irish hair and the preternaturally red apple cheeks had made his presence known to Debs on the red special and had asked him what he should do for the advance of socialism, the presidential candidate running against the two slow-moving bills, William Jennings Bryan and William Howard Taft, Debs had advised, perhaps sensing something hawk-like in the man's bright eyes, go and read more books. He should study to improve himself for service to the poor of earth. So had he done in his own essentially materialistic way, and not only had become increasingly involved in industrial unionism, but had lent all his strength to opposition to the war preparedness movement, which would permit the American plutocrats, uh, plutocrats to snatch babies from their cradles in order to send them to distant wars, and would bring in scabs to run their mines and mills when the doughboys were shipped to foreign battlefronts. The reason they were called doughboys, according to one comic explanation, which had a grain of tragic truth in it, was that they were the flower, the very flower, okay, so they, so that they were the flower, F-L-O-U-R, I mean wheat flower, the very flower, F-L-O-W-E-R, of American manhood. It's a play on words. Colonel George Harvey, who spent his time pinpricking Wilson, believed that Newton D. Baker should not be Secretary of War. What was required for that bloody office was not a man named Baker, it was a man named Butcher. No one knew, or would ever know, who had brought sudden midnight to so many lives of innocence at that early afternoon parade. Some enthusiasts, even should Mooney and the others who were picked up be found innocent, had wanted them to hang, much as if they, be, much as if they, because of being associates with radicals, should suffer the same fate as long ago had been the fate of the Haymarket victims, whose crime had been engagement in freedom of speech. Mooney was to spend more than two decades on death row waiting for the executioner, whose coming was continually deferred because of the uncertainty as to his guilt and the obvious perjury of some of the witnesses and the almost familiar pattern of the frame-up which had official sanction by some of the ruling powers and the continual loud-mouthed intervention by men and women of ethical conscience on his behalf. The first execution had been paused by had been passed by because President Wilson had quietly asked that the date which Mooney had upon the calendar to meet the hangman should be deferred while research was done to find some other cause for bringing him to justice. For as a president engaged in bringing peace to the world by way of war, the pale-faced man, even if not to the point of blushing to the gills, was embarrassed by the protest against Mooney's hanging, which was coming from the Allies and other nations, and even his own nation, which had cried out its opposition to the execution. The Preparedness Day bombing. That is what they're talking about in history. I have no idea what that is. I would have to look it up. Um, so yeah, that's the first. Wow. Okay, so 
So we really jumped in, like she just jumped in feet first into um, what was going on in the U.S. at that time. Uh, yeah, that was chapter one. <laughs> Took off with a bang. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Sorry I got split up into two parts. I'm recording and for some reason I got a phone call in the middle of it and it knocked and it kicked me out of the uh, program. So sorry about that. Hopefully we'll have a smoother uh, start or smoother, smoother going. Uh, as we continue this very, excuse me, long book. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye.